Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to another bonus episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Growing plants that thrive in your yard is a lot easier than you think. It starts with saving your own seeds and letting them remember what they already learned. Just text SEEDS to 33444 or visit IWantToSaveSeeds.com and you'll receive our free webinar about why seeds matter, why saving them is easy, and how you can save your own. Today's bonus podcast is a rebroadcast of our monthly seed class where our seed expert Bill McDormand shares some seed wisdom and discusses news and concerns that might occupy the thoughts of those of us that are saving seeds. Welcome, welcome everybody. Greg Peterson coming to you from the urban farm in the heart of Phoenix, Arizona. Tonight we are on the line with Bill McDormand for our monthly seed chat. And our monthly seed chats have turned into educational opportunities. I think last month or the month before we talked about seed patenting. And this month we're talking about why is your gut messed up? So welcome, welcome, Bill. <laughs> How is that related to seeds, Greg? Yeah, there you <laughs> Hello, go. Hello, everyone. There you go. <laughs> yeah, this is Bill McDorman in Cornville, Arizona. Nice. Nice, nice. How's the weather up there? You said cooler. It was yeah. actually 80s today here. It was nice. Wow. Yeah, we're getting some really interesting, unseasonable weather here in Phoenix for the past year and a half or so. Anyways, <laughs> what are we talking about tonight, Mr. McDorman? Well, we will talk about seeds and any questions that people have. That's the general theme for tonight. So Absolutely. We try to do this once a month so people can ask their questions. And the best questions are your personal questions, ones that may have no relevance for anyone else because it's your problem or your exploration in your backyard. But those are the best questions for me. So don't feel bashful at all and ask away. All right. Greg and I usually choose, lately we've been choosing a topic to kind of yeah. swirl around at least until the questions get going. And one of the things that keeps coming up these days is maybe the possibility. Well, you know, we don't have the double peer-reviewed scientific papers yet finding exactly the smoking guns right. in the nation's gut problems. I mean, have you been into the grocery store and seen how big the gluten-free section is now? I know. I mean, it's nobody good. can deny the market is moving something 
And so there is definitely a problem, I think. Yeah. So we're talking about grains here, which are seeds. And, you know, there's modern grains, and then there's the heritage or ancient grains. And you have some great backstories of how you've been involved in this ancient grain movement. But what's the difference? I have been involved, and I think it relates to what we were just talking about, because more and more people are finding out, or at least willing to experiment with ancient or heritage grains, because they find that it does not upset their intestinal tracts in the same way. In a little while, we can talk about what that has to do with the amount of gluten or not. But generally, there's a movement back toward older varieties of grains. And it seems like the older you get, go back, the farther and the more even to what we call ancient grains, the less problems people are having. That's just a general observation. And I hear this over and over now. Is this been scientifically proven? Well, there's more and more papers out yeah. picking at you know, the specific reasons why. And I think we will have some links up at some point for folks to be able to follow or to get those papers if you want to look at the ones that are out so far. But generally, yes, heritage grains would be ones that our immigrant ancestors brought to North America, most likely. That's the largest category of them. And ancient grains go all the way back to Mesopotamia and the start of agriculture itself. And so these are kind of categorical, descriptive terms. There's no, you know, scientific dividing line between them, but sometimes they're used interchangeably changeably heritage or ancient grains. But generally it means you're not using modern wheat especially mm -hmm. anymore. And when people tend to get away from that, the majority of their problems seem to be going away. I'll just say that. That's happened in our family. My wife had problems, got problems for almost two years, gave up all gluten for about a year and is now able to eat my einkorn belt and durum bread that I bake. And so that's just one example. I mean, she's not eating bread on the level that she used to when she was younger, but she's been able to reintroduce bread back into her life as long as we use these older grains. Isn't that cool? So what is actually happening then? What's the scientific thought behind why these modern wheats are problematic and the ancient ones aren't? Well, you know, no, the first target has been gluten itself. Modern wheat has been bred to have more gluten. It makes fluffier bread. It makes a white bread product in pastry that American consumers have wanted. And so breeders have done their job, fantastic job, in changing the actual structure of the wheat, especially in the last couple of decades, to increase the amount of gluten. Also, sometimes in modern breads, gluten's added in. Even more gluten is added in. And so we have found, or at least we did in our family, that that that's a problem. We can't just eat that anymore. And so when you go back to older varieties, they were actually naturally had less gluten in them. And it seems like when you go all the way back, and it depends on the variety and where it was bred, and I could get into some of the differences a bit around it, but it's generally as you go back farthest to the oldest grades, people who have gluten sensitivity problems tend to have fewer of those problems. There are some really major differences in wheat. And one of the best ways, this was really a surprise to me when I found out, is that our modern wheat is not the same plant even as the wheat that most of the history of humanity ate when they grew and ate and processed wheat. So let me give you some examples. We think now that einkorn was the first wheat. And there is evidence that it was actually grown in pretty large quantities up to 40,000 years ago. We talk about modern agriculture starting 10,000 years ago, and that's when we find, you know, quite prominent archaeological evidence 
that einkorn was being grown and processed and made into other foods 10,000 years ago. We know it's been around that long, but it's basically a wild grass that was just selected to have larger seeds that were easier to harvest over a long, long, long period of time. And we know this because its DNA is different. It only has 14 chromosomes, which is really interesting. It's a really simple plant. And somewhere along the line, a few thousand years after that, it crossed, we think we know what they call a wild goat grass. And maybe this was only one plant. It's potentially possible, or maybe it was a field someone found or whatever and saved the seeds. But that wheat had... They didn't know it at the time, of course, but it had 28 chromosomes. And so because of the increased chromosomal structure, whatever, it was actually adaptable to more situations. People took it farther away from the Fertile Crescent. They grew it in more places. They adapted it to more situations. That's known as emmer, basically, were the first 28 chromosome wheats. So we had einkorn, 14 chromosome. Somewhere along the line, that cross gave us the emmers and some of the emmer type wheat or 28 chromosome wheats that you can still find around today are durum or called semolina which is still one of the world's most popular pasta wheats also a new grain that's come in the last several decades to our continent especially known under its trade name kamut is another one of these simple grains a 28 chromosome grain and so then somewhere along the line those one of those crossed again with a wild grass we think and that gave us what we think are the modern wheats and modern wheats have actually 42 chromosomes So it's a completely different chromosomal structure. So if you want to be literate at your dinner party and people are talking about gluten and ancient and heritage grains, you can now understand wheat, at least, as three distinct groups that are linked genetically but are distinctly different and help to describe the difference between modern heritage and ancient wheats. So I always like that story. So, you know, for instance, my favorite grain now for making bread is einkorn. You know, it's the the oldest. It's 40. That's a 14 chromosome. Right. It's simpler. It does have some gluten in it, but it has way less. There are speculations and tests being done now that show that maybe the gluten tides, they call it, are different. Even if there is some, people with gluten sensitivity won't be irritated by it as much. 42% more protein than modern wheat. You know, modern wheat, we've bred for yield. And starch, it turns out that starch molecules are larger and heavier than protein molecules and grains. And so if you're a breeder and you want to up yield, you breed for starch. And so a lot of our modern grains have way more starch. In fact, some of the proteins, it seems, maybe even some of the amino acids in our wheats are are starting to drop out or are found in lesser quantities. And so go back to the ancient ones and you just get all this other nutrition. And this is, you know, great bakers and cooks will tell you that equates that diversity in protein and more of it also equates to more flavor. Mm. And I think this is where you're starting to see these superstar celebrities chefs now Uh are starting to champion ancient and heritage grains in their cooking also. So it's all kind of tied together and it's really actually exciting. There is what we're we're calling the fresh flower movement. This is another way of looking at this. Not only have we in our family gone back to ancient and heritage grains in our diet, but we fresh milled them. There are some studies that show, you know, I haven't seen a definitive one, so you can take this with a grain of salt, but it does make sense that maybe up to 40% of the volatile oils that are trapped inside each 
grain start to oxidize and are gone within hours, if not days, of when that grain is milled. And so those volatile oils represent some nutrition and especially flavors. And so if you have ever had fresh milled, fresh baked bread, it's a totally different product. It's just amazing. I'm becoming known as a master and amazing baker in my own community. Uh And really, I'm not doing anything differently than I did when I was in college and I made my own sourdough bread. I just fresh mill the grain and fresh bake it right then. And it's just an incredible difference. And so I feel better about it. It tastes better. All my friends are happy. My wife can eat it now when she was gluten-free for more than a year. And so this is probably the core of this story. I'm on my way to get a loaf. (laughs) You know, we're starting to see craft bakeries spring up that are based on these principles. Don Guerra's Barrio Bread in Tucson, Arizona is just becoming famous. In fact, he's doing seminars and teaching classes now all over the world. And really what he's done is gone back into fresh ground, fresh baked bread. It's really fun to walk into his bakery uh-huh. because, you know, a modern bakery, first of all, we don't have a lot of small modern bakeries anymore. We do have some, but Don did something really special. I thought he put his ovens where he bakes the bread right out in the front of the shop. So when you walk in, it's hot and he's in there and he's got his paddles and he's putting loaves in and out of the oven and you have to kind of move to the side and get out of the way. And he wanted to bring that bread and that whole process and get people involved in it right out in front. And then over on the side kind of toward the back is a little table where he takes your money if you want to buy bread. And that's all he does is bake and sell bread. It's really a wonderfully simple thing. And I think that symbolizes kind of where all this is going. We've forgotten how good all of this stuff really is when we do it right. Yeah, no kidding. No kidding. So I've kind of been privy to your bread baking, that spoonerism coming out over the past you know, probably a couple of years. And I'm really curious to know, is this a time-consuming thing? Because I know you've actually gone to the point of you're actually growing your own grains as well. Talk about what it takes to do this. It does take time, you know, and it's work, but it's fitting well within my lifestyle. You know, I'm in my mid-60s and Mm -hmm. it just works. I'm a gardener, you know that. And Mm -hmm. I'm actually just fascinated now with gardening with grains. If you've never gardened with grains, you are in for the treat of your life. The amount of diversity. We've got, you know, purple Tibetan barleys. We've got black-awned Maori wheat, which has black-awns. Those are the little hairs that come off of each kernel. They're four inches long and black. I mean, it's the most beautiful ornamental thing you've ever seen. We know now from experimenting, and there's several people, Dr. Ralph Bush, who teaches at the Air Force Academy. I'm lucky enough to see a seminar he gives every year at the grain school that we help sponsor. The Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance has partnered with University of Colorado, Colorado Springs, and Dr. Nana Meyer there. And every January, second week in January or so, we have a grain school. And Dr. Ralph Bush comes and presents. And he's actually, he's an interesting character, Greg. He's a professor. He teaches at the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs. He's an Mm -hmm. engineer and metallurgist, but he's also a passionate grain grower in his own backyard. He gardens grains and he puts up little charts. He knows how many cookies, how many pizzas and how many loaves of bread he can bake on his hundred square foot beds that are in his backyard growing grain. And so, you know, I have a friend here that lives in Sedona, Arizona. Monique, if you're listening, hello. She was just telling me 20 loaves. She figures she's going to get out of a hundred square feet this year, growing her own ancient grain. She's got Sonoran white wheat, which was the first wheat brought by missionaries to Arizona 400 years ago. Right. And they're all so beautiful and so different. We've got purple ones, blue 
ones, black ones, blonde ones, tall ones. They come from all over the world over this 10,000 year period. They come with stories. I just planted Queen of Sheba barley that supposedly came from the Queen of Sheba. I mean, how <laughs> fun is that? You know, right. and then I get to harvest them and I get to fresh mill them and I get to bake my own bread and then I get to serve it to my friends with all those stories. I mean, you just can't beat the fun. And so, yeah, it's time consuming, but it's not overly time consuming. And if you're a gardener anyway, you know, you're going to have to learn how to thresh. In some cases, some of these grains are really easy. You just bang them into a trash can and the grain falls out, maybe pour it in front of a fan to winnow it, they call, so the chaff blows out. Others, like the belt and Einkorn, the grain itself comes off the plant with a hull on it, they call it. Mm -hmm. And so you have to rub it on screens or find a way to de-hull it before you can actually grind it. But that's just all part of the fun. And if you've got chickens, there's never anything to waste. So it's really been a wonderful way for us to incorporate this whole new level into, you know, our gardening experience. And, you know, this is something that we should all think about for a second. You know, we've got this really beautiful local food movement, you know. You and I have been part of the permaculture movement for a number of years now, you know, food forest in your own backyard or whatever, but the fact remains up to 70% of our calories come from grains. Right. They just do. As modern creatures, that's what we eat. And so, you know, we've got a wonderful system that we started now with our farmers markets and all these things, but most areas do not grow or sell any of its own grains anymore. And that's just totally different than it was two generations ago. Every area had its own local grain economy. And it was based on varieties that either, you know, that were brought to their area by immigrants or uh -huh. were passed into their valleys and have their own stories. And here in Arizona, some of those stories, as I said, go back 400 years for some of these grains. And so, you know, part of what we're doing at the Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance and part of the goal of our grain school at UCCS and our Heritage Grain Trials Program is to resurrect an interest, first in gardening with them, because we don't have a lot of seeds of these older ones. We right. need to help increase the seeds. And then we're hoping that within two to three years, we'll have enough to pass 20-pound bags onto the farmers in our areas so that they can really start doing mm. the work and scaling them up so that we could all have enough of this stuff to eat locally. Yeah. And so talking about scaling up, you got to tell the story of Sonoran White Wheat. You were involved in that process. Yeah, tangentially, I guess I was. Bella and I were the directors at Native Seed Search. Our staff put in a grant, Western SARE grant, and it was developed, I think, Dr. Gary Nabhan, who helped start Native Seed Search, uh -huh. uh, was part of that, and six other partners. And basically, the idea was that we would start growing grains again. And out of that, we started growing white Sonoran wheat, and white Sonoran wheat was first introduced into Arizona by Father Kino. He was the first person to establish missions along the Santa Cruz River first in southern Arizona. And he brought what they called their wafer wheat, the body of Christ. Oh, you know, right. the little white wafers that they yep. serve in every service. And so, you know, they're setting up new churches in these missions. And so they've got to have their wafers. And so wherever they went, they took this wheat. And so the indigenous folk, people of southern Arizona, then traded for some and started growing it. They were growing corn before that, and they ended up grinding it and doing what they did with corn, tortillas. And that's actually where the flour tortilla was invented, uh -huh. using this wheat, that this Sonoran white wheat that it's come to be called the Father Kino brought. And so that turned into actually a really incredibly abundant agriculture in southern Arizona. 
oftentimes just growing on monsoonal rains or through the winter in their rains. You didn't need a lot of extra irrigation and it was abundant. In fact, there are stories about how it fed both sides of the Civil War in the last years of the war. Oh, really? They had to reach out west to get food because the north and the south had burned each other's fields early in the war as a strategic way of weakening their enemies, but nobody had any food. And so they reached out west to the Gila River Valley and there was so much grain being grown here at the time. Just to give you an example of how abundant it was. Then the modern era came. The Gila River was dammed. The whole elegant system lost its natural water out of the Gila River and the canal systems that the Hohokam had actually originally dug. They're ancient peoples. And, you know, within a generation, the Gila River Indians, we call them now, were starving almost. And the wheat disappeared, actually. And through some of the good work, I think Dr. Nabin did through Native Seed Search, there's others. They found the original strain, they think, of the Sonoran white wheat that was grown in southern Arizona. Just handfuls. And so this grant that we got, the SER grant, a few years ago in southern Arizona was the first real structured attempt to grow it out again and make it available. And I'm happy to say that, you know, when we left there, the word was there was over 1,100 acres of it being grown again in southern Arizona. And so you can get access to those grains. Hayden Mills in Phoenix, Arizona. BKW Farms in Marana, Arizona. One of the people that came along just after we started that process at Native Seed Search actually came to one of our first grain schools. Ron Wong, a proud graduate. And now I stopped by and saw him. He's got about 185 acres of Mm. organic heritage grains growing. He's starting to bring that back. He's growing a lot of grain for Don Guerra at Barrio Bread. And so these are just little examples of how the local grain economy can get started again. And it's because there's a market for it. People want to try something different. And once you do, boy, you'll never go back. That's just my own opinion on it. (laughs) This is kind of a curveball here, but I'm going to throw this out anyways. So as a gardener, one of the things that I use to garden with is straw. Bales of straw. Right. uh, Right. The problem we've run into with straw these days is if it's not organic, it is drenched with chemicals. Absolutely drenched with chemicals. So one of the really cool things that's happening is all of a sudden with all of these, you know, the ancient grains and heritage grains being farmed, they're being farmed organically. So all of a sudden we have a source for organic straw again, which is huge in the gardening arena. Wow. See? Multiple uses, stack your functions. I love it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Here in the Phoenix area, Jana over at Pinnacle Farms raises, you know, the Sonoran white wheat and some other ones, some other heritage grains. And, you know, I get straw from her. Wow. Well, and, you know, if you grow 100 square foot of grains Uh in your yard, I'll bet you get enough straw for two or three beds out of that. You know, because so many, one of the other things that they've done with modern wheats, and this just helps keep them from blowing over in the wind, Mm -hmm. from wasting energy on the stalks, and then the more energy the plant can go into the head, so yields are up. But modern grains are really short. They don't have a lot of straw. But Mm -hmm. you grow einkorn or Sonoran white wheat, and it's chest high, you know? So you get a lot more straw anyway. The roots are way deeper, you know, so they need less water. They get more minerals that way. There's speculations about that too. But yeah, grow your own straw. Grow your own grains, grow your own bread, grow your own straw for your garden. I love that. So talking about growers, there's a movement out there. There's actually growers growing these ancient grains. How are they marketing their seeds? Well, you know, there's not enough growers yet in our understanding. I mean, this is still a little craft sort of thing. And that's the biggest question every grower has. How do I market? Is there a market, first of all? And how do I do it? And so, you know, the modern world and the internet have lent new opportunities, I 
at BKW Farms in Marana, Arizona. They sell priority mail boxes with 25 pounds of grains in them. You know, oh, so wow. they take advantage of the U.S. post office and they put them in thousand pound totes. And when I was talking with Ron, he said, yeah, I just sent all these totes of Sonoran white wheat to New Jersey. He said, Bill, can you believe that? People in New Jersey want to buy my grain, you know? <laughs> And so, you know, so I asked him how it was working and he's doubling, he's scaling up to 185 acres this year because he's been able to sell what he's growing. So that's a real on the ground report of some success along these ways. I know Hayden Mills, you know, which bought the old Hayden Mills rights and names, actually mills some of the grains that they're growing with their grower into flowers and other things. And then they sell all of their stuff online also, Hayden Mills. You can find Mm -hmm. them online to buy stuff. Another friend I've made in the last year. He's actually the largest einkorn grower in North America with about, last summer, Jade Coyle had about 600 acres under contract with growers for him. He won in an auction, einkorn.com. And so he sells his oh, online nice. over the internet. And so these are direct farmer, you know, to consumer connections. They're right. really great. You know, right. the whole West Coast is reached by Azure Standard, which is a trucking company that delivers, you know, organic. They have a full line of belts and emmers and einkorns and durum wheats and barleys and corns. And if, you know, you get into their program and you buy enough, there's no shipping cost, you know, to get those 25-pound, 50-pound bags delivered to your place. And so I think the farmers that are learning to sell into those kinds of food hubs are having success also. Those are just some examples of things I've seen, yeah. Right. And so also, and we get this question occasionally, people say, well, can I take those 50-pound bags, which is essentially food? grade einkorn and can I plant some of it? Oh yeah. Yeah. Those are the seeds. Those are the seeds. Plant them. Grow them out. One thing to be aware of, if you have an ancient grain that is not holus, as I mentioned before, like einkorn Mm -hmm. and spelt would be the first two. And sometimes emmer is that way. You need to have it de-hulled. And I just noticed in one of the places, I think it was on Azure Standard, that they do de-hull it. They have a little warning on there saying, well, you know, germination will be, if you're wanting to sprout this, is what they're talking about, will be lower from de-hulled grains. Because they're ripping the outside mm-hmm. skin off, basically. Right. And what that does is damage some of them. And so the general thinking has been, oh, if you have a grain that's been de-hulled, then it's just not going to work or work as well for you when you plant it. That's the folk wisdom around that. I'm finding that, especially from these small growers that are really high quality, that take great care in what they're doing, even their de-hulled grains are germinating well for me. I got over 75% of my einkorn came up. And wow. I love that, you know? That's it's my great. eating einkorn. Right. Grind it, plant it. And so I encourage people to try it. You know, especially if you're in a home garden situation, just throw out a handful. I mean, it doesn't cost you very much. Right. And there'll be way more seeds in there than you need. And so if the germination's low, you'll still get enough. And then in a sense, you're selecting for those grains that are tougher (laughs) to germinate after they've been de-hulled. So it's a win-win. Yeah. So Susan from Pittsburgh actually asked the question. I think we've completely answered it, but I just want to throw it out here anyways. Do you have any recommendation for where to get the older types of grain seeds? Yeah. You know, if you're back east, I would look in your area. There are a number of initiatives, and this is all in real time, from Stone Barn, you know, to L.A. Gosa's Heritage Grain Alliance, I think it's called. I could look it up for you. There are a number of places. Elliot Gosa's is called the Grain Conservancy, uh-huh. grossy.org. She may have information about where you can buy them out there. There's a Northeastern Organic Wheat 
is another website. There's a Maine Grain Alliance. There's a Northern Grain Growers Association. They meet every January, I think, up in Maine. That's what you want to do is find the people kind of in your area. Most of the places I talked about are alive and well in the Southwest because that's where I live. Einkorn.com is in Idaho. That's a great place to buy einkorn. And that's where I buy mine online. This is, if you checked a month ago for sources, check again. That's how quickly right, this whole thing is. Yeah. It's just exploding. There's more and more interest, more and more people coming online all the time. It's really an exciting time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're on einkorn.com? I am on einkorn.com. And you know you can organic einkorn berries in super pails. You can buy them three and a half and six gallon sizes. So yeah, you can buy plenty of einkorn there. You know, two years ago, I looked and I could not buy einkorn in bulk. In fact, L.A. Ragosa was selling ounces of einkorn seed for $90 an ounce Wow! for people to get started growing it. Uh-huh. I mean, the fact that it's available now and widely distributed has just come about recently. Right. So this is really an exciting time to get into it. The other thing you'll see if you go to einkorn.com is Mock Mill, M-O-C-K Mill. This is the brainchild of Wolfgang Mock. And these are stone mills. These are desktop home stone mills that wow. are state-of-the-art. Mm-hmm. And they are so beautiful and they work so well. And I could go into the whole story, but that's what I have. And I highly recommend my Mock Mill to everyone. That's changed my life. I mean, uh-huh. I started like everyone else. I thought, I have a hand grinder. I'll just grind my own grain, you know. But if I'm making two loaves of bread, that's 45 minutes. When I use my mock mill, it's a minute and 40 seconds, you know, and it's better. <laughs> Way right. better. Spell that again you know? for me. Mock. M-O-C-K. M-O-C-K. M-I-L-L. Yeah, the world's, it's been known for a long time in these circles that the world's best home stone grinding mill is called a Como, K-O-M-O. And these are handcrafted in Europe out of wood. They're beautiful, Greg. They're oh, they works are of art. I see them here. The Mo in Como is Mach. Wolfgang Mach actually designed the inner workings of the Como mill. And it's been tested now for decades. He took those inner workings out and instead of handcrafting a wooden outside, he uses recycled plastic. All right. And so the cost came way, way down. So for the first time, most homeowners can actually afford one of these things, especially Uh Americans. So it's the best of both worlds. It's recycled plastic outsides with an ancient technology that's been tried and tested over decades, especially in Europe. And now you can have it sitting on your desktop, grinding your own flour for your own own Mm. bread or your own pasta. Beautiful. They have the Comos for $400 on Amazon and the Mock Mills for $300. That's, you know, yeah, if you, what it does is not bad. You can look around and the Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance, you know, we've been promised that we'll be able to offer a small discount for them too. So look around. Mock Mill 100 and Mock Mill 200. And the 100s are actually $100 cheaper. And they're oh, fine. Perfect. They're the same. That would be adequate for most homes. Perfect. I mean, you could run a whole community off of 200. Growseed.org. They have a black emmer wheat, spring red vife. So you can buy that there. I just was and doing L- some Google searches. So they're, they're you yeah. know, it's easy to yeah. find that. Elie so. Rigosa, who runs the Grain Conservancy at GrowSeed.org, also has a new book about grains and the history and heritage grains. And she did research on the nutrition. That's pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. I think that's available through Chelsea Green. 
Mm, so what was the name of that book? I will look for you. Again, I prepared some links, and I'll make sure Greg gets those. For the show notes page, yeah. Susan also says, thanks for the ideas on to find ancient and heritage grains locally. If I understand correctly, as long as the grain is organic, then the seed you buy to eat is also good to plant. Yes, that is the case, Susan. And quite honestly, if you can't find it in organic, buy the non-organic one and plant it and grow it out, and then you have organic. Yeah, there's nothing really inherent in it not being organic that would hurt it. I was reading through oats, for instance, on one of the sites, and what they said right in the description of the grain is that they steamed them, you know, and blanched them. So if they do that, then it's not going to grow. So you want raw. And look for that. And again, this is such an incredible, the fresh flower movement especially has put a premium on selling these things. So there's new grains available for this market and most all of those grains will work. You can plant, at least the ones I've found so far. Perfect. I've got some questions here from our listeners. We've got from Karen and Grayson. They both are looking for low budget seed storage for viability. How do we store seeds most viably? Cool, dark and dry. (laughs) That's, you know, whatever it takes to do that. Don't overthink it. You know, we talk about this a lot. Keep it below 80 degrees Fahrenheit, no matter what. If you live in the western United States and most of the arid west, humidity you'll never have a problem with. If you live in an area that has more humidity in the air, just don't put them in the container you're going to store them in on rainy days or high humidity days. Wait for a drier day to do that. You can also supplement with those little desiccant bags of silica that come in almost everything yeah. that you get from Amazon <laughs> these days. And just don't put them in the sun, you know. They don't have to be perfectly dark. But those are the values that you always want to store with. And so, you know, traditionally, there's probably, you could almost draw a conclusion and say the majority of the world's seeds for the majority of our history, human history, have been stored in clay somehow. It seems to be the perfect medium. The clay draws the moisture out, mm-hmm. it insulates it somewhat and keeps it cool. Perfect. So here's an interesting question. This is from, and what caught my eye on this is, this is Chris from uh, Victoria, Australia. So she's listening at a very different time of day. And it's a bit of a deep question. How is cytoplasmic male sterility in carrots used to produce F1 seed? Can these F1 seeds be used to plant for plant breeding and saving seeds by backyard growers? You might have to explain that one a little bit. Yeah, this is a controversial topic, actually in organic production. It's probably in our country anyway right now, it's not going to be as controversial. They're just approving lots of controversial things. But it's a cytoplasmic male sterility is a genetic trait that makes so that the male portion of the plants or the pollen producing of the plants doesn't produce pollen. And why this is important for plant breeders is then you don't have to open up a flower that is self-pollinating and pull off the little anthers to keep it from pollinating itself. Because what a plant breeder wants to do is cross two different things. They want Uh to bring in pollen from somewhere else. And you can't bring in pollen from somewhere else if the flower actually produces its own pollen. Uh So you can, up until modern times, the only way to do that, and that's what Mendel did with peas, is he opened, physically opened up the flower and got some tweezers and pulled the anthers out of there, the pollen producing little filaments in the flower. He had to do that. Well, modern breeders instead will put the traits they want in a male plant that they're going to cross with something else. And in the female plant, they'll cross in cytoplasmic male sterility. They'll put genetics in that plant 
that keep it from producing those anthers or that pollen in the first place. And so to do their cross, all they have to do is bring in pollen from somewhere else. It really makes it a lot easier for a number of plants, like carrots and cabbages especially. In fact, I think the original genes for this came from cauliflower, if I'm not mistaken. Uh Now, can you save seeds from an F? So say you buy an F1 hybrid that has been produced and one of the parents had cytoplasmic male sterility and you want to know if you can save those seeds. Well, of course you can save them. Will they be good? My guess is that a lot of them won't, that that trait will carry through. I don't think it's a dominant trait, but I don't know and I've never done this, so I'll just say that. But my guess is that you could still save seeds from that and that it may take some tricks down line, what we call recurrent back crossing, and you could look up what that means and you may already know because you asked such a sophisticated question. Uh-huh. But, you know, never say never. There's nothing in this stuff that locks it up for good. Now, will it be ethical if, say, you save seeds from this and somehow that cytoplasmic male sterility is in your offspring and you're starting to stabilize that line and you take it down to your local seed exchange and you've got some questionable genetics in there that are controversial and nobody knows about? I mean, that's a whole other story. I don't know. (laughs) But I don't know that you can't save seeds. It may be, but it would take somebody with more specific experience around that. In fact, we may have a listener on the line, Joseph Lofthouse, that knows the answer to that. And so instead of writing a question, Joseph, you could always write us an answer. And then hang (laughs) on, and by the end of the program, if Joseph answers this, we'll get the answer. How's that? (laughs) Love it. So I want to jump in and just talk about our Seed School Online here just for a couple of minutes. Bill and Bell and I go back a decade and a half, maybe. And when you guys first started offering Seed School, it was only live and in person. I think I came to one of your first Seed Schools and did some teaching up in Cornville, but then I actually attended Seed School in Tucson in 2011. At that point, I said, man, we need to put this one online. I was going to say, that's how this whole thing got started. And we just didn't know how to do it in 2011. Right. You know, it seemed like there was software out there, but it seemed like a really difficult thing. But you're right. You know, the very first seed schools were in 2010. So you were there in 2011. And originally, they were all live. It started as a 10-day program. We were trying to copy the two-week permaculture courses that were going on. And then we ended up shortening it to six days. But that's really how it got started. You're right. Yeah. Well, shortened it to six days and then boiled it down to what are essentially nine lectures that cover the gamut of what you cover in a seven to six day course. You know, we lost track at 50 and more than a thousand graduates. And so, yeah, we took a lot of feedback. The seed schools we do today are way different than the ones we started with. Yeah. Those were started with 30, almost 30 years of experience Mm -hmm. trying to teach people how to save seeds. That's my background. You know, we did all these courses and we kept honing. We got feedback from every course. What do you want to learn? What do we know that you need to learn if you're going to be effective, even though you may not think it right now? I mean, there's all sorts of stuff that goes into the thinking to put this together. But anyway, yeah, the opportunity you allowed us through doing a seed school online was incredible because it gave us a chance to narrow down to the most important topics, but in some ways to have the time to stretch out where we needed to stretch out and tell some really great, meaningful stories. And so it's just really a great product. But, you know, each one of those lectures, I told this to a friend the other day again, each one of those Seed School Online lectures took about four 
40 hours of work on my part to put together. I mean, it just takes way longer than you think. You know, it sounds like it comes off pretty easy, but boy, there was a lot of work that went into making sure that it came off that way. And so I think it's a truly phenomenal condensed, you know, entity out there in the world. I'm really proud of it. I have people that come up to me all the time now and say, oh, I know your voice. (laughs) Wow. I learned so much in seed school. And I try to remember the faces of everybody who's ever come to a seed school. But now I get these waves of people, especially at conferences. And I have no idea. I go, I have never met you before. And they go, oh, I did it online. (laughs) And I go, I thought I was losing my mind, you know. So it's great. Nice. There's actually a couple of freebies up front. Seed Saving Hacked is one of them. And if you go to SeedSavingHacked.com, you can get that free webinar. And then there's another free webinar on cool, dark, and dry. I'm pretty sure that that's also included in the mix. But then there's the seven pre-recorded online classes include classes one and two are the spirit magic and power of seeds and the history and structure of the modern seed industry. It's really important to know. Give me literally 30 seconds on that. Well, if you don't know why we should do this as modern creatures, you probably won't do it for very long. And so that's the why, mm-hmm. you know. And right. we've seen 20,000 small seed centers or companies become three in the world right. in the last four decades. And so that's the 30-second version. Of course, it's more complicated than that. Yeah. Huge centralization. And with that, a loss of diversity, a loss of the things that you could actually grow really well mm-hmm. with stories in your own backyard. We're part of the movement to try to bring that back. And that's what Seed School Online is all about. Beautiful. And then class three is Intro to Mendel's Genetics and Selection and Evaluation. That's a more technical class, but you do a really good job of presenting it. Feedback, you know? Have you ever thought about Mendel with just enough Mendel to understand what you're doing in saving seeds? I mean, it gives it a whole context. Oh, right. Of course. Yeah. It's visceral. So all of a sudden, these abstract concepts start to make sense. You can see the colors, you know, in the pea flowers, for instance, you know, so it's really great. Cool. And then class four is pollination and breeding. Class five is harvest storage germination testing. Class six is wild seeds. And the wild seeds class has gotten critical acclaim pretty much since the beginning, has it not? Yeah, it's always one of the most popular. That was a real surprise. You know, I got started in this whole thing trying to figure out how we're going to save our food system without a lot of diversity in it. And turns out that everybody that thinks that way also wants native, natural, wild, and no chemicals, you know, in their own yards. And that's where wild seeds come in. You know, the medicine, the beauty, the resilience that wild plants can bring to our lives is just incredible. And I gathered the seeds for over 40 different wild forbs in my backyard in central Idaho for more than 25 years. Yeah, that's all. And that's the basis of that lecture. You know, if you really want to get into hacking into that and understanding that, I just give you all the what not to do, you know, to get started. It'll waste your time. All the things I learned practically that'll get you down the road pretty quickly. Perfect. And then class seven is seed enterprises, seed exchanges, libraries, small seed businesses. Tell me how many seed businesses and seed libraries have come out of seed school? Well, we don't know how many libraries. You know, there was an estimate that it was more than 100. I don't know, because what's happening now is we've got over 70 teachers that we've trained. 
Nice. So we do teacher trainings. And so those are teaching courses. And then some of their students are starting libraries. And so it's getting really complicated. There are about 500 seed libraries in the United States, though, altogether. We just happened to be there talking about it, you know, as it got started. And I counted definitively, and I think it's a little bit more now, but at least 13 seed companies have come out of our students. And so I'm really proud of that also. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful. So a seed school online that takes you to a page where you can look at signing up. There's a great video there, talks about the course and so on and so on. The free webinar is seedsavinghacked.com. If somebody wanted to learn about grain school or seed school teacher training or doing a seed school in person, where do they find out about that, Bill? RockyMountainSeeds.org. And you can also find under our programs, our Heritage Grain Trials program. We have about 200 and I want to say 35 different ancient and heritage grains that we found, sometimes only 50 seeds of, that were once popular or are now popular somewhere in the world in similar climates to the Rocky Mountain West. And if you sign up for our program, we'll get you some of those seeds and a little booklet on how to do trials. And we've got forums online and you can help us us build a new network of people that are growing, saving, and sharing, you know, heritage grains so that we can yeah. help build new local grain economy here in the Rocky yeah. Mountain West. And all of that can be found on RockyMountainSeeds.org. If you don't do anything else, just sign up for our emails. And we'll just keep you, you know, we don't ever give them away or sell them. And we'll mm -hmm. just keep you apprised of what we're doing. And I'm sure something in there will capture your attention. The um, grain trials, that doesn't have to be in the Rocky Mountain West, does that can be anywhere. No, you know what? We're the Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance. All the resources we have that we focus are in our region, but we're open to anybody. And what we're finding is that other people don't have a good regional, you know, nonprofit right. seed conservation organization yet. So they're tapping into ours to learn how to do it, to be part of something until, you know, they can help start one well, in their own regions. And we love to help other people do that. Well, and here's my question. If Susan in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania wanted some grains to grow out, could she get some from you? Oh, yeah. We have there you go. I just checked. We have 83 trials. If you'll go to the Rocky Mountain Heritage Grains, you know, under our programs or under our resources menu, you'll see a thing where it says search our directory and for grain trialists. And you can search the directory and you can actually bring up a map. And our grain trialists are all over the United States. And oh, what's neat is that even if you're in Pennsylvania and there's somebody near you, you can click on it and get their address or their email. And you can email them directly and you guys can share grains and information. And we're not even involved. We're here to help network everything, not to build a new organization. So I just want folks to understand that. We're click and mortar. We don't have a building. We're part-time <laughs> employees. We're just trying to, you know, change Make the world difference. quickly, yeah. quickly enough so that we can all eat really good food, no matter what's thrown our way in the future. And I know you feel that way too, Greg. And oh, you do so much time. great work with these programs and your seed school online that you've helped us get out there and stuff. And so, you know, it's just always an honor and a pleasure to be here with you. Right back at you. Thank you. Thank you. So two more things. Denise in Amaranth, Ontario, Canada says, thank you both for making this course available online. Absolutely, Denise. And guess what, Bill? We have an answer from Joseph Lofthouse. Thank you, Joseph. <laughs> I love it. You knew it. All right. Here's what he says. CMS in carrots is visible in the flowers because they don't produce anthers. It's easy to see and eliminate. In most cases, our experience is that F1 carrot hybrids only produce seeds if pollinated by some other variety. That is usually wild carrots 
Queen Anne's lace. And then he follows it up by saying, so they are horrid. I don't know why they're horrid. Maybe you can say why. That's his whole answer. Well, that's great. See, I've forgotten that. You can actually look into the carrot seeds then in your F2 generation and see if there's cytoplasmic male sterility or CMS. You will actually be able to see flowers without anthers. You'll have to get, you know, a loop or a magnifying glass magnifying, and you'll have yep. to look at regular carrot flowers so you know what those anthers look like. But that's really a great tip. Thank you, Joseph. I'll remember that. Joseph yeah. Lofthouse is a phenomenal plant breeder. If you'll Google Joseph Lofthouse or Land Race Seeds, you can get a copy of his list. I think it's online and you can get some of his incredible projects he's been doing in trying to create new land races. His family name is famous, as I was telling Greg, one of the most popular wheats grown in my area of the world, Idaho, where I grew up and in northern Utah in the early part of the 20th century was known as Loft House Wheat, which came from one of his ancestors, I'll call him. And so yeah. Joseph's just carrying on in a long tradition. And so, yeah, tap in and thank you, Joseph. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You know how much I love you. <laughs> nice, nice. And Susan says, thank you for all the work that you do. Janice from San Jose says, will this replay? Yes, this will replay. It'll replay through the link, this link that it will stay live. We will also pull it off and here in about three weeks, it'll get posted in my podcast. I am the podcast host for Urban Farm Podcast. If you haven't listened in, listen in. We do two podcast episodes a week with absolutely amazing guests. So thank you very much, Bill, for joining us. Oh, Jan also says that she'd gladly put a donation of $15 in. Jan, that would be awesome. Thank you. Apparently, there's a button on the screen that you're watching, you know, that you guys are looking at for a donation. If you want to throw in donations, you can do that there. So, Bill, thank you so very much for all that you do and for continuing to play. I love that we get together once a month and do these. So thank you so much for that. Hey, back at you, big guy. It's been a great and is and will remain a great friendship. So yeah. let's keep rocking it. Woohoo! Absolutely. And thank you all for some of your precious time and spending an hour and five minutes with us. So thank you. I hope you enjoyed this. Check out Seed School Online or Seed Saving Hack, Urban Farm Podcast, Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance. This work we're doing is to change our food system. And what I always like to say is join the food revolution. It's our job to get it done. Thank you, Farm Out, and I will catch you on the flip side. Growing plants that thrive in your yard is a lot easier than you think. It starts with saving your own seeds and letting them remember what they already learned. Just text SEEDS to 33444 or visit IWantToSaveSeeds.com and you'll receive our free webinar about why seeds matter, why saving them is easy, and how you can save your own. Today's bonus podcast is a rebroadcast of our monthly seed class where our seed expert, Bill McDormand, shares some seed wisdom and discusses news and concerns that might occupy the thoughts of those of us that are saving seeds. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, 
Hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago. Then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free.